0: Well, we move from uh, Birmingham to, to Chicago. And the talk, next talk will be given by Brian Mustanski, who is a professor of social studies and psychiatry and behavioral studies at Northwestern. And Brian is going to talk about new advances in HIV prevention and sexual health. Brian.
1: Thanks, John, and thanks uh, to the organizers for inviting me to uh, participate and present today. I uh, will start by pointing out that I am the, I guess, resident psychologist uh, on the faculty today. So uh, I will be talking uh, about a mixture of um, uh, behavioral sciences, epidemiology, and some of our more surveillance-related work to prep uptake, barriers to prep Um, etc. But more broadly in the domain of what are some of the new developments we're seeing in HIV prevention and approaches to uh, promoting sexual health. I have no disclosures. And as I mentioned, I'm going to be covering some of the epidemiology of new diagnoses in the United States, some changes in the prevention landscape, uh, and some of the challenges with biomedical prevention strategies, particularly for young men who have sex with men, Um, I should mention, in addition to being a psychologist, I'm an adolescent health researcher. So a lot of the work that I do is focused on young people and is definitely going to be featured uh, in the information that I'm going to be providing. Uh, So this is data from um, the CDC on uh, new HIV diagnoses in the United States from 2010 through 2015. And as you can see, men who have sex with men continue to represent the vast majority of HIV diagnoses in the United States. Um, And what we are observing uh, is declines in um, some other populations. So they're reporting a 22% decline in the number of diagnoses uh, attributed to heterosexual transmission, and a 34% um, decline in injection drug use from 2010 through 2015. Uh, 2015 being the most recent data um, that they've released. Uh, Overlaid on top of those um, patterns in terms of uh, mode of transmission, when you look specifically at men who have sex with men, you can see that young people are uh, disproportionately representing the cases of new diagnoses. Um, So 25 to 34-year-olds being the largest group of new diagnoses amongst men who have sex with men, um, about 9,000 cases a year in 25 to 34-year-olds. That's a 23% increase over that period from 2010 through 2015, Um, the rate in 13 to 24-year-olds is the second highest, but has leveled off um, after many years of fairly large increases. um, We are starting to see uh, a leveling off of new cases in that population. And then we're seeing declines um, in some uh, older populations of MSM in the United States. Uh, Again, um, as we continue to drill down to understand um, who's representing the majority of new infections, when we look specifically at that youngest group of 13 to 24 year olds, you can see that um, by far and away the largest um, group of new infections is in black. Um, young men who have sex with men 13 to 24 who represent the largest number of diagnoses of any group in the United States by age um, and race grouping. Um, We have seen a leveling off of the number of diagnoses uh, um, in black young men who have sex with men in recent years, obviously at a very high and unacceptably high level, uh, but perhaps a leveling off. And now we are seeing increases, an 18% increase in diagnoses in Hispanic Latino um, young men who have sex with men in the United States over that period. Um, We uh, uh, reported a simulation in Jade several years ago, I think um, three years ago, on uh, the um, uh, projected uh, incidence of HIV diagnoses in young men who have sex with men over the next 15 years. And our simulation did predict that we would see a leveling off of diagnoses in Black young men who have sex with men, and that the disparity might begin to cl- be closing, the racial disparity might be beginning to close. But not because we're going to see declines in Black young men who have sex with men, but because we're going to be seeing increases in diagnoses in Hispanic, Latinos, and potentially in white um, young men who have sex with men as well is what the simulation suggested. Certainly from a behavioral perspective, white young men who have sex with men are engaging in uh, most of the highest levels of risk behaviors for HIV. So um, they're certainly from a network perspective and from a behavioral perspective, uh, if we start, um, there, there's several characteristics in place that could lead to increase in incidence in that population as well. So those are the numbers put in terms of CDC charts. But if you look at it another way, every 44 minutes, um, a 13 to 29-year-old gay, bisexual, or MSM um, in the United States gets diagnosed with HIV. So every 45 minutes, we're seeing a diagnosis in um, this youngest group of men who have sex with men, which I think is quite sobering and really um, helps draw attention to why we should be really focusing uh, our efforts on addressing HIV in this group. This is the um, CDC's very recently released um, um, sort of heuristic for thinking about how to um, get to no new HIV diagnoses in the United States. And it lays out the various routes towards um, um, achieving this goal of getting to zero or no new diagnoses. Um, it talks, as you can see on the left side of the figure, um, the sort of pers- per persuasive aspect or the persistent aspect of reducing um, HIV-related health disparities. Obviously, we're not going to get to zero if we don't take a health disparity perspective, given the major disproportionalities and diagnoses that I, that I had already mentioned. Um, but you can see the, um, the CDC perspective on this approach to HIV um, prevention or getting to know new diagnoses um, includes increasing knowledge of HIV status through testing, prevention of new diagnoses through tools like PrEP, HIV prevention education, syringe um, services programs, uh, reducing transmission through viral suppression and data to care approaches, and rapid detection and interruption of um, active HIV transmission using cluster um, detection, investigation, and response. And I'm going to talk a little bit about each of these prevention approaches using young men who have sex with men as an exemplar for what we know and, and where things are headed. I'll start by talking about increasing knowledge of HIV status and testing as an approach to getting to zero, or a component of that strategy. The National HIV um, AIDS Strategy has a goal that um, 90% of people who are HIV positive are aware of their HIV status. Um, and you can see um, this uh, surveillance data from the CDC in terms of where we're at with different um, age groups uh, in the United States. And um, you can see we're, we're doing much better at older ages than we are at younger ages. So we did uh, recently surpass the 50% mark in terms of young people who are HIV positive knowing they're HIV positive. But for many years, we were really in this place where the pattern was almost inverted uh, in terms of status awareness in young people, where the majority of adults who are HIV positive knew they were HIV positive, And the majority of young people who are positive did not know that they were positive. We've just surpassed, recent, more recently, that 50% threshold. But obviously, we have a long way to go if um, we want to um, reduce incidence of cases in this 13 to 24-year-old group. People need to be more aware of their status, and we need to do a better job of facilitating, promoting, and making um, HIV testing accessible to young people. This is some data um, looking at the National HIV Behavioral Surveillance System data um, from 21 cities, um, the CDC's major surveillance system for understanding the HIV epidemic. Um, And you can see they collect data on 18 to people over the age of 50 um, in uh, in those 21 cities, men who have sex with men. And this is the rate of people who had ever had an HIV test in their life at at that period, 2008. And we compare that to some data that we reported on um, 314 to 18-year-old gay and bisexual Um, adolescent men uh, through a national um, online survey. And you can see in our survey um, approximately a little under 20% or right around one in five of the 13 to 20 or the 13 to, uh, I'm sorry, 14 to 18% 14 to 18 year old gay and bisexual boys had ever had an HIV test in their life. So one in five ever had an HIV test in their life. Now, if you look at um, sexually active, those who had initiated sexual behavior, it was one in four. So slightly better, 25% of sexually active young gay and bisexual boys had ever had an HIV test in their life. What were some of the barriers? Not knowing where to get an HIV test, And fear of getting an HIV test, so fear that somebody would recognize them, someone would tell someone that they were getting an HIV test. And so I think for those providers who are working with teens, really thinking about how are we creating um, infrastructure in clinics that is making HIV testing available to um, this population. One um, example of this was uh, the uh, um, outcomes of our randomized um, control trial of an intervention called Guide to Guide, which was a text messaging-based intervention to promote HIV testing and um, HIV risk reduction in HIV-negative um, gay and bisexual teen boys. This was um, reported in Pediatrics towards the end of 2017, and um, we developed this te- text messaging campaign through um, qualitative interviews with young people, through a youth advisory council, we sent five to seven text messages every day for six weeks. So uh, those of you in the audience are probably thinking there's zero chance you'd be interested in getting five to seven text messages every day for six weeks from some HIV uh, prevention researchers. But this is just a drop in the bucket in the lives of young people. Uh, young, um, young men in the United States average uh, about receiving about 100 text messages a day. So our uh, five to seven was just a drop in the bucket. Um, In addition to us sending them text messages with HIV education, messaging, um, promotion of testing, we also paired them up with another young man where they could practice skills via text message with another young um, gay and bisexual man. The other young man had to be at least 500 miles apart, because we didn't want them to be <laughs> able to meet up with each other. Um, but uh, also had to be within one time zone, so that you know one person in New York wasn't texting someone in California or vice versa um, late at night. Uh, and we also had what we call G2 Genie, which is a system where young people could text messages to us, and through um, some text processing, we could then have predefined answers that we sent back to them. What we found in this um, RCT that compared this text intervention to more just general health education sent through text messages, was uh, we found no change in condom use behaviors um, as a result of receiving those text messages. And, And I think part of it is just the complexity of enacting condom behaviors. It's a dyadic activity, you have to negotiate it with a partner, you have to obtain condoms. Those are fairly difficult tasks and hard to communicate in 160 characters, some of the complexity of of those interactions. But we were able to, I think, successfully communicate with young people about how to get an HIV test. And we found that compared to the um, uh, control group, we saw an over threefold increase in the odds of young people getting an HIV test at the three-month follow-up. So from about one in five to about one in two in the intervention arm on to get an HIV test. And I'll tell you, our approach to promoting testing was not rocket science. We showed them a video of a young person walking into a clinic or a community organization and getting a test to normalize it, show what it's like, show that it's not scary. We had a clinic locator where they could text us their zip and we would say where the clinics were um, near them. And then we did what you could call um, e-nagging or cyber-nagging, which is we sent them a lot of reminders to go and get that test. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I want to point out is obviously if we think that only uh, one in five or one in four young MSM has ever had a test, uh, HIV test in their lifetime, um, and about 50% of those who are positive know they're positive, Um, we're not going to be particularly effective at using these rapid detection and interruption activities in a population that the majority of cases haven't been identified or only half of the cases have been identified. So things like molecular surveillance, for example, um, are probably not going to be highly effective in addressing the epidemic in the youngest groups when, again, only about half of people who know they're positive have been positive. And then thinking about the care continuum of who's getting in, who's having uh, uh, um, uh, the information collected that would allow us to do molecular surveillance through the, through um, seeing a provider. So now I want to switch um, to talk a little bit about PrEP and some of the work that we've been doing around PrEP. Um, uh, some of, or most of you may know that on Tuesday, the FDA expanded their indication for PrEP use um, down to the age of 15. Uh, so, uh, PrEP is now indicated for individuals at risk in the United States over the age of 15 years and older, which is, I think, a, a fantastic development in terms of um, the accessibility of PrEP. Uh, but I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges. Again, if only one in uh, four sexually active young gay and bisexual boys have ever had an HIV test in their lifetime. You can imagine the challenges and the, and the real issues with PrEP having an impact on this population. If we can't succeed in getting testing out, we have some real challenges in thinking about getting PrEP delivered um, to those most at risk in the younger age groups. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm the PI of a large cohort study of about 1,200 um, young gay and bisexual men who come from pretty much every neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, It's a longitudinal cohort study uh, where we collect data from biological specimens through looking at community and structural factors. I'm going to share a little bit about what we've learned about PrEP uptake in young men um, in Chicago. Uh, as a result of this cohort study. And these are the um, co-investigators. As I said, it's funded uh, by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, So this paper, um, in AIDS and Behavior, I think came out last week or the week before, uh, uh, reporting um, a threefold increase in PrEP uptake from um, 2015 to 2017 in young men who have sex with men in Chicago. Um, you can see that those increases from about 6.6% overall at the first visit through the third visit one year later Um, up to 17.5%. Now, those differences, um, there were differences in terms of race, in terms of that uptake. So you'll see there was not a significant increase in uptake in black young men who have sex with men. Although there is a trend, you can see the overall numbers show an increase. It was not significant, uh, but it was significant for um, Latino young men uh, and uh, for white young men um, as well. Now, um, when we look specifically, so that's overall just PrEP. We also, um, uh, in using both cross sectional data, um, when we also look at longitudinal data over that period, we're able to look at who was likely to um, have PrEP uptake. And in terms of that baseline, we found that the older guys this is a sample of 16 to 29 year olds. So the folks at the um, older end of the spectrum in the 20s were more likely to have initiated PrEP. Those who had more sexual partners were more likely to have initiated PrEP within the cohort. And those who lose, used less marijuana. Uh, we're more likely to um, initiate PrEP. We have fairly high rates of regular uh, marijuana use in this cohort. Um, what we found, which I think is good news, um, is that across the waves, uh, 77 to 82% of the participants who were taking PrEP reported that they were at least 90% adherence using a standard self-report adherence measure, um, and only 14% were less than 60% adherence. So, if we use the criteria of say four doses a week as a minimum threshold for um, some PrEP effectiveness, then we saw less than, um, uh, you know, 15%. Uh, we're underneath that threshold of adherence. Obviously, this is self report data, but um, in cohort studies like this, I think there's reason to um, be more trusting of the um, self report data than you might find in trials. Now, um, this is Sam Janessa's model that um, got a lot of coverage at CROI. It's also um, reported uh, in a Journal of Infectious Disease, which is a simulation of PrEP, inta- uh, PrEP impact under different conditions. And so I took the data from our cohort and put it into Sam's simulation. And you can see in the model on the left, we're assuming 80% adherence as um, self-reported by the participant. We're assuming a 20% starting HIV prevalence, which is about the HIV prevalence in our cohort of young men who have sex with men in Chicago. Um, and then we look at model one, which is assuming 20% um, PrEP coverage. As I said, it was about, seven, I think, 17.8, 18. So assuming 20% PrEP um, coverage, we would see around 20% of infections averted in young men who have sex with men. Now, if we got very ambitious and thought we might get to 40%, double. PrEP coverage in this population of young men who have sex with men, we'd get about 35% of HIV infections averted. So I think it's important to understand that in terms of the role of PrEP, in a getting to zero campaign, that it's not going to get us to zero on its own. You know, if we, re- in the territory of where we're at with coverage of around maybe 20% in the leading edge of HIV infections in, in the United States, if we could even double that, we still would only be a- averting about 35% of infections. So we really have to think about getting at higher levels of coverage as well as using other prevention modalities. Um, Uh, I think a particular concern, and for those who are prescribing PrEP or working with patients on PrEP, is very high rates of discontinuation. In cohort studies, um, whether they're community cohorts or clinical cohorts, I think the data is really starting to come in on how long people are staying on PrEP once they initiate it. I think that's um, something we're really trying to understand better. Um, In our cohort across all visits, so we actually have seven waves of data that are collected within the field, Uh, We had 197 participants who reported PrEP use in the past six months at any visit. Of those, uh, about a third had discontinued by the time of their study visits. I think that's probably um, my instinct, or as we're doing uh, further analyses, probably an underestimate of what we're seeing as discontinuation rates. I think they're probably higher than a third. But this is just from if someone was ever taking it, had they discontinued by the time of a study visit. Black and Latino young men were more likely than white young men to discontinue. And this is, I think, really key. 79% did not discuss with their doctor before they discontinued PrEP use. So I think that's something, you know, as we're thinking about discussions about um, long acting um, PrEP agents that may have a very long tail of use, if someone's going to discontinue uh, and not talk to their doctor, not going to go on an oral, formulation as um, they're in the tail of the um, long-acting agent, we have to think about what the impacts of that will be. Uh, But right now, most young people who discontinue do not discuss it with their doctor before they discontinue. So I think, again, we can be thinking about how can we facilitate patients who are going on PrEP thinking about having that as a conversation with their provider, if they're thinking about discontinuing, are they going to adopt another risk reduction strategy? Or can we help them um, find solutions that could help them um, not discontinue? We saw that risk behaviors did continue after um, PrEP discontinuation in the sample. And of the 65 participants who reported discontinuation, these were the the largest reasons for discontinuation. Uh, We started with open-ended responses. We just said, why did you you go off of it? We qualitatively coded that and then created a quantitative measure of reasons for discontinuation. You see about one in five reported they discontinued because of having troubles um, getting to their doctor's appointments. So those um, every three months doctor visits uh, for testing um, and uh, you know, are clearly a challenge for this population. Uh, lost my insurance. My insurance wouldn't cover it. Was the second most common reason. I didn't think I was at risk for HIV anymore, despite the fact that we saw you know continued risk behaviors after discontinuation. I just didn't feel like taking it anymore. Side effects from the medication. I couldn't afford the medication anymore. I had trouble remembering to take the medication. So if someone, for example, were to quiz you on what are some of the common reasons for PrEP discontinuation in young men who have sex with men, you might notice that um, trouble taking the medication is fairly low on the list of reasons for discontinuation. People reacted negatively. They found out. So we thought stigma might be an issue. We didn't hear that very commonly. Um, Or we actually had some that were in research studies that ended and that, um, at the time, created a challenge for them to continue to get PrEP. A uh, lot of discussion now about you know quote risk compensation in the con- in the context of prep use. I think there were a lot of great talks on that at CROI in terms of community risk compensation, individual risk compensation. Um, this is a paper that we just recently published in JADES led by my colleague uh, Michael Newcomb. Um, this is also data from the Radar cohort, nine hundred um, and fifty three participants, and. What we found is when we looked at um, um, data over time, uh, on times when participants were on PrEP and on times when they weren't on PrEP, we looked at was there a change in their rates of condomless anal sex when they were on PrEP versus when they were not on PrEP. Um, and what we found is that uh, there was a significant increase in uh, reports of receptive anal, um, condomless anal sex while on PrEP Uh, The event rate ratio was about 5.6, so nearly six times higher rate of receptive condomless anal sex while on PrEP um, than when when the same person was not on PrEP. Uh, And when partners of HIV-positive participants were on PrEP, they also reported that they had more anal sex with that partner. This is the HIV-positive participants in the cohort reported more anal sex, but not more condomless anal sex. Big debate around PrEP and STIs. There was the Kojima um, et al. meta-analysis that reported a very large, uh, very, very large association between PrEP use uh, and gonorrhea, 25 times increased rate in gonorrhea uh, as an unadjusted association between PrEP and STIs. Harawa et al. in 2017 wrote a a very thorough critique of that um, uh, meta-analysis. Um, Some of the complaints that were raised or or critiques of that um, original meta-analysis were that it compared STI rates from PrEP users and non-users from different studies versus, in our case, we were looking at the same people over time when they were on PrEP and when they were not on PrEP. They weren't controlling for temporal increases in STI rates. We know STI rates are going up um, uh, in young people in the United States in general. They over-relied on data from the Explore study, and there were no adjustments for higher STI testing rates. Uh, in PrEP users. Obviously, if you're on PrEP, you're more likely to be getting frequent STI tests, so you're going to have more diagnoses of STIs than individuals who are not getting tested as frequently. Um, more recently, Traeger et al. published a meta-analysis of eight studies with over 4,000 men who have sex with men. Uh, I think it addressed some of these methodological challenges in the initial meta-analysis and found that PrEP was associated with about a one59 odds ratio increase, odds of rectal chlamydia, uh, and 1.24 um, odds uh, ratio for any STI. Um, more recently, since that meta-analysis, there's been two um, case uh, longitudinal studies that have fought, that looked at data before people went on PrEP. Uh, in both of the studies, I believe it was in the year before going on PrEP and the year after going on PrEP uh, that showed increased rates in STIs um, in the year after PrEP initiation. One of the studies also looked at PEP. Uh, which I think is an interesting association that's not been very well explored. They found no association between PEP and STIs, but they were much less powered uh, because of fewer cases uh, to look at that. So um, that's a little bit of discussion about PrEP. Um, Now I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, broadly about other risk reduction strategies. Um, One of the greatest challenges we have in HIV prevention is um, uh, implementation, reach, reaching people with prevention programs. Um, And I think that's been, uh, is very clear. This is data from the NHBS in terms of how many MSM received in HIV prevention, just materials or services in the past 12 months. And you can see it hovers. You know, around uh, one in four, uh, and it differs a bit by race. With uh, black uh, men who have sex with men more likely to be um, being reached with HIV prevention programs, but still fairly low reach uh, in terms of uh, population at very high risk for HIV. Um, I, my particular, one of my particular areas of research is in e-health approaches. I talked a little bit about the guy-to-guy text messaging program. I've also led a program of studies, um, called a, the intervention called Keep It Up, which is an e-health approach to risk reduction that involves people who just tested HIV negative, young um, gay and bisexual men who just tested negative, um, engaging in an e-health program with the goal of keeping up their HIV negative status. And um, it's, been, it's gone through a number of um, trials, a small pilot trial. We just completed a multi-site uh, randomized um, control trial. The results will be coming out very soon in American Journal of Preventive Medicine. Uh, I'll give you a preview of them. Um, this intervention includes uh, a lot of different multimedia content, videos, storytelling of other young men, soap operas, virtual reality bar club that people go in and interact with different characters. And one of the big things that we focus on is HIV prevention in the context of a serious romantic relationship. I think one of the things that's really important, you know, we looked at not feeling at risk as a big factor in PrEP discontinuation or not going on PrEP. The majority of HIV infections in young MSM in the United States occur in the context of a serious romantic relationship or from a main partner not hookups that are where most transmissions are occurring. That's clear from modeling studies, from surveillance studies, from our own behavioral studies. So in thinking about discussing PrEP, uh, with young men in particular, really thinking about if their reason for not going on it is because they say they have a boyfriend, and maybe really developing that discussion with them, and, and perhaps suggesting that they should still consider going on PrEP. So uh, as I said, the results will be coming out in uh, American Journal of Preventive Medicine very soon. Um, Just as a preview, we did uh, rectal STI testing. 13% of the participants um, tested positive for a rectal infection at baseline. This behavioral intervention significantly reduced the rate of rectal infections. So it's one of the first behavioral interventions, the first e-health intervention to show effects on biomedical outputs. Um, The field of prevention is really moving uh, from um, single sort of simplistic traditional RCTs, two-arm RCTs, to these adaptive RCTs. So I lead a um, NIMHD-funded U01 where we're doing a stepped care randomized trial where we step people up to more intensive prevention interventions if they're not responding to less intensive interventions. You can see that figure kind of like hurts your head a little to look at it if you realize that's a randomized trial design. Uh, you know, you de- We definitely have a team of statisticians plugging away at this one. But uh, you know, I think that's just as a kind of preview of where behavioral science is moving, prevention science is moving. is stepping people up to more intensive interventions versus keeping them in the same intervention, regardless of whether it's working. Viral suppression, I'm not going to talk a lot about um, treatment, is prevention, treatment as prevention, except to say a little bit about um, a paper that we just had come out in the Radar Cohort Study, again, in AIDS and Behavior. Um, This is data on the HIV positive, 185 HIV positive men in the cohort, young men in the cohort. You can see the continuum of care. About 50% of the young men uh, that are HIV positive have achieved viral suppression, which is fairly consistent with CDPA, Chicago Department of Public Health epidemiology and national epidemiology in young people. Um, Really, our main question was, are those individuals who believe that they're virally suppressed actually virally suppressed? Um, Because that's key to treatment as prevention. If you don't know your viral suppression status, you can't make decisions about um, um, treatment as prevention or undetectable equals untransmittable. And what we found is among the participants who had our study specific detectable viral load, about 30, 34%, about a third of them, self reported being undetectable. So, again, a third of people who had detectable viral load self reported that they were undetectable at uh, their last medical visit. There was higher concordance between their medical chart when we looked in their chart and their self report than there was what their current viral suppression status is. So, I think we need to investigate that more in terms of prevention. So I'll just leave this um, CDC overview up of prevention uh, options to help get us to zero uh, as I take questions. But I appreciate your attention. Thank you.
0: I'll start. Um, Brian, in in studies in Africa, older men often infect younger women. Is that any relevance to young MSM?
1: Yeah. The, um, I, I would say the short answer is we don't entirely know. Um, in some of our network research where we're looking at sexual networks, it does look like, um, particularly in, in uh, Black young men who have sex with men, they do tend to have partners that are slightly older than themselves. But we're talking about maybe two or three years older versus, say, 10, 15 yeah. years older. Now, of course, if you're talking about a population that might have a 5% annual incidence, two or three years actually makes a big difference in terms of transmission. The phylogenetic data um, that the CDC reported did not show a big effect of transmission from older black MSM to younger black MSM. But again, that big caveat that most young people who are positive don't know they're positive means there's a lot of gaps in that phylogenetic data to understand transmission patterns in this population.
0: I guess this is referring to your comment Um, Do younger men practice serial monogamy uh, and does this affect PrEP use?
1: Yeah, I do think that that's the modal pattern of sexual interaction is serial monogamy, um, particularly when um, condomless sex is occurring. So we do see that... Um, actually, condomless sex with a casual partner is a more rare event in young MSM. Most of the casual sex, I'm sorry, most of the um, condomless sex is occurring in the context of a more serious relationship. And there does tend to be a pattern of, of um, serial relationships. I would say about in a, in a one year, 12 month time span, we see that there's probably about maybe three serious relationships, uh, is what we see as, as a fairly common uh, pattern. for
0: testing individuals under the age of 18? Is parental consent required in Illinois?
1: Uh, In Illinois, uh, anyone over the age of 12 can get an HIV test uh, without uh, parental involvement. There's no duty of the provider to, Uh, alert the parents. Um, The provider can alert the parents uh, of a positive result if they feel like it's in the best interest of the child and if the child uh, has not followed through on attempts to disclose themselves. Uh, But yes, um, most places in the United States, pretty much all 50 states, uh, minors have the ability to self-consent to HIV testing. So it's not a legal barrier. Do most teenagers know they can get an HIV test without their parental permission? That would be not, not true. Most of them do not know that they have that legal right. A
0: couple of questions about the level of detectability and our viral load in your studies.
1: Is it uh, high, low, or what? Yeah. So in the um, in the guys that were not virally suppressed in that particular paper I um, described in AIDS and Behavior, we were interested in that discordance of people who said they were virally suppressed or had an undetectable viral load at their last visit, whether perhaps what we were detecting was more just a small blip, you know, that it that it actually might not be a full um, viral rebound or or. Uh, but uh, in those guys, uh, uh, the vast majority of them had over a thousand copies. Um, So we don't think that um, what we were seeing was just a blip.
0: How did you get people to enroll in the guy-to-guy study? Uh,
1: So we are, um, we uh, have figured Facebook out (laughs) until recently. (laughs) Uh, So we do a lot of advertising and outreach on Facebook, Instagram, social media. I have a whole... I practically run a small advertising agency at Northwestern in terms of uh, we do photo shoots. We have good uh, images for recruitment. Um, Of course, with changes in Facebook, uh, scandals around data privacy and such, a lot of that has changed. And we're back to kind of square one of figuring it out again. But uh, we do do a lot of outreach on social media. And we find it to be very effective and very cost effective, actually, in terms of getting people in. So if you're interested in doing initiatives that help reach young people to get them into testing i think social media can be a very cost effective way to do it
0: one of the questions, one of the participants wants to know how do you ensure confidentiality
1: of your participants yeah, well, we, um, we have some complicated things to think about. So in the radar cohort, uh, people, some of them are minors. Some of them bring their romantic partner into the cohort. So we have to have confidentiality to make it clear that just because one partner tells us something that we're not going to tell their boyfriend what they said. Uh, we have waivers of parental permission. Again, uh, anyone over the age of um, 12 in Illinois can get an HIV test without their parents' permission. In terms of research, federal guidelines defer to state law in terms of research, uh, whether parent permission is required or not. So it is legal to involve um, teens in HIV research in most states without parental permission. Um, And so we, over the years, have just developed a lot of systems for when we do an intake with a participant to say, you know, if we call and your mom answers the phone, what do you want us to say? Should we say we're calling from Northwestern? Should we just say, you know, we'll call back? So we actually have notes in all of our contact records of what we can say, how we can reach out to people. If we can't get in touch with them, is there another person that they trust that we could reach out to um, to find them?
0: Currently, the recommendation for people using PrEP is to be seen every three months for testing and seeing whether they're saying it. Do you think that's enough? Or do you think, what What do you think could be done to increase adherence?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, you saw that one of the reasons people discontinued was um, having trouble getting in to see their provider. So, one of the challenges with frequent visits is you have to be able to get in to see the doctor. And for some people, that can be a challenge. I know in the ATN uh, prepare trial uh, that Civil Hosick led, they saw that when they spaced out the prep visits more than monthly, that they start to see a lot of discontinuation. So in the um, FDA expansion of the um, age uh, uh, indication for PrEP, they do say that uh, they might suggest that providers think about more frequent visits with adolescents uh, for PrEP. But you have to weigh that against the challenges that adolescents might have getting to their visits. So I think you really have to have that as a discussion with the patient about what's achievable for them.
0: Any other questions? Thank you. Thanks.